Hi, I'm Tony Hines, and you're listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. Well, before we start today, I've just got one one favor to ask of you. And that is, if you like the Chain Reaction Podcast, please ask your friends to drop by and join us. We really like to share our programs with people. And as they say, the more the merrier. So please don't keep it a secret. I know knowledge is power, but hey, sharing's good, isn't it? So we're back with the regular edition of the Chain Reaction Podcast. Now, one of the things I was always made aware of is that if you wanted to know how any business was doing, follow the money. And I read this week that Gazprom, the Russian state-owned gas company that supplies lots of gas and energy to Europe, has cashed in a £179 million dividend from its London-based international trading arm. Gazprom, of course is making headlines elsewhere as gas prices have risen. The £179 million dividend was paid in 2019. Pre-tax profits are said to have slipped slightly in 2020 to £271 million, while net trading income rose to £558 million. It's the world's largest supplier of gas. They employ about 800 people around the globe, and they generally make money by gambling on future prices of power. And they have a retail division supplying energy to customers and liquefied natural gas unit that arranges gas shipments. Shares in the company rose by 60% in 2021, so that tells you that people are expecting it to be highly profitable this year. At the start of 2021... The UK was paying 56 pence a therm for natural gas. In the summer, it rose to 451 pence, which I reported in a previous Chain Reaction podcast. The current price has fallen back from that high to 189 pence at the start of January. So that's good news for consumers, but it's still nearly four times higher than it was at the start of 2021, so there's some pain here. Britain still has some supplies of North Sea gas, and it imports gas from tankers. Europe gets about a third of its natural gas from Russia. I know the governments are unhappy with this, and they're talking about windfall taxes and what they can do to mitigate the effect of these energy prices, but I don't think really they're going to have a great deal of influence over Gazprom. The key is to search for alternative supplies, and of course in the longer term to switch away from gas to other forms of non-fossil fuel power. But whether they can create enough of the green energy power to achieve this is questionable at present. Gazprom, of course, has been trying to open its pipeline through Europe. Now, this is a pipeline that passes through different parts of Europe, including Germany. And at the moment, the European Union has delayed permission for that pipeline to open. It's likely to take about six months, so it's going to be mid-year before we know really what's happening with those gas prices. The Russian president, of course, Vladimir Putin, 
has said that uh, opening the pipeline would be good because it would lower the prices of gas supplied. Hmm, interesting one. Now, the rocketing gas prices are going to really hit consumer pockets, and prices are likely to jump to around about £2,000 for many consumers just heating their homes in 2021. The Nordstrom pipeline that supplies gas through Europe, or it will do when it's allowed to open, it passes through Ukraine, it passes through Germany, that will likely deliver gas more efficiently and it will mean far fewer tankers delivering gas than at present. There is another pipeline but it takes a longer route but this one will connect right through Europe. Ofgem, the regulator in the United Kingdom, is looking at ways to mitigate the impact on consumers but these wholesale price increases are very likely to find the way into their wallets and purses. And many of the smaller energy companies in the UK have had a pretty rough time where they were offering good deals, leaving customers high and dry. They've had to close down and the larger companies have taken over their customers, meaning that their tariffs will inevitably be higher. There's talk at the moment about the UK being able to exercise some discretion over the value-added tax charged on energy bills to lower prices for consumers, and for that matter, businesses too. But it remains to be seen whether that policy will become reality. Now, an interesting take on the United Kingdom leaving the European Union is how it impacts the European Union. I know that trade is significantly lower both ways since Brexit, and reports are saying it's up to 35% lower. But these aren't confirmed statistics, and we'll have to see over a longer period, because some of that downturn will be due to COVID-19 and the pandemic, of course. But a new reality dawned on the 1st of January, which is that the grace period for all those bureaucratic checks and controls at customs points when goods cross borders is now a reality. And many firms are going to be faced with lots of paperwork, new customs declarations for all kinds of goods. And the preparedness of those firms in the UK is mixed. Big firms probably better prepared than smaller firms. But what about in Europe? In Europe, apparently there's little understanding of the changes that are being made. Obviously, again, the larger firms probably have a better understanding than the thousands of smaller firms who do business with the UK. And they're going to turn up to border controls and some are going to be turned away because they haven't got the right paperwork in place. And there's probably going to be people in Europe that are going to say it's really too difficult now to do business with the UK because of all these additional costs and delays that we're experiencing. And they'll be looking elsewhere to do business where it's easier. Now, that's a disaster, not simply for those European suppliers to the UK, but also for customers in the UK who want to have the goods coming in from Europe. So we'll have to wait and see how this one plays out. But it's yet another impact of the friction introduced by changes to trade regulation. And on that note, here's a plug. You may want to go and listen 
to my episode, special edition on the Chain Reaction Podcast, talking about tariffs, trade policies, and supply chains. So go and go and stop by the site and have a listen to that particular episode, and uh, you may find out a little more about the history of tariffs and the role that the World Trade Organization plays. Now, in the past couple of months, I've reported on inflation and the impact of inflation coming through supply chains. And one of the main supply chains of concern is that of food. Food going in to supermarkets is likely to be higher priced due to the HGV driver shortages and the higher cost of raw materials, including fuel to get the trucks to the depots and to the stores. And so all those costs moving through the supply chain, are going to hit everyone's pocket. And I read in the past week that uh, there's a bit of a spat going on between major retailers in the UK. Some retailers, like uh, Sainsbury, have decided that they can no longer price match against Aldi on certain categories of goods. And this is one consequence of these new price increases. One figure in a national newspaper said that Uh, an average family could pay up to £700 a year more on energy bills. And of course, there's a national insurance contribution, which is a tax in the UK, likely to rise by £255 on the average worker. So the squeeze on household budgets is going to be pretty tight in the year ahead. The six main retailers in the United Kingdom are Tesco, Sainsbury, Morrison, Asda, Aldi and Lidl. Both Aldi and Lidl are acknowledged discounters, and they have a growing share of the grocery trade in the United Kingdom. And they're the main competitors for the pound in everybody's pocket in the UK. Discounters, of course, will see an opportunity in this difficult market because they will be able to build market share because they have ways of keeping their costs down that some of the bigger retailers find it difficult to do, strangely enough. Food inflation is likely to be somewhere between 5 and 10% across categories. And if that cost is not passed on to consumers, retail margins which are tight in categories such as food would push them into a negative profit situation. In other words, they'd make a loss on the food being delivered. Price of everything has gone higher, as we've said, because of the shortage of HGV drivers. So even packaging materials are higher cost of transporting a container, as we know, from China to the UK has risen five times in the past year to Europe and the United States. And I can't see any lowering of those numbers anytime soon. And the shortage of drivers and labour means that uh, wage costs are going up too. So perhaps the UK Prime Minister will get his wish of a high wage economy at the price of a high inflation economy. Have you ever wondered why Aldi and Lidl might do better than Morrison's, Sainsbury, Asda and Tesco? Well, I have some thoughts on that. Both Aldi and Lidl have extensive networks of stores across Europe. Morrison's, Tesco, Asda and Sainsbury are UK-based and so... One could argue, forgive the pun, they have all their eggs in one basket. If one country is not doing so well, they can move profits around to invest in businesses where they want to grow. 
So for example, if UK stores are not doing particularly well at a point, they might say divert profits from other areas into investment opportunities in the UK to get market share. Now it just so happens they are doing well in the UK because discount stores at this point in time are doing particularly well because they offer customers good value when some other retailers might not. And when you're paying high costs for fuel and energy in the home, discounts has become attractive. I'm going to look at the big six retailers in the UK, the ones everybody uses, which is Tesco, Sainsbury, Morrisons, Asda, Aldi and Lidl. Those are the main retail groups that people use. Analysts believe that the recent private equity takeovers of both Asda and Morrisons will add about 4.2 billion and 6.6 billion of debt onto their balance sheets, respectively. This will disadvantage those businesses if they decide to compete on price. Neither of them have so far increased prices substantially, but Asda has become significantly less focused on fuel pricing, petrol and diesel at the pump, since it was bought by the billionaire Issa Brothers and private equity firm TDR Capital last year. So they're taking profits rather than lowering prices. And this is probably to fund debt. Now they could use some of the profit rather than spending it on the debt to fund lower prices in store. And this may be a competitive strategy that they wish to employ at some point. But at the moment, they're concentrating, I think, on getting the debt down over time. Tesco, Asda, Morrisons and Sainsbury all enjoyed large increases in sales, turnover and profitability during the pandemic. And much of this was fueled by home delivery services, which neither Aldi nor Lidl provide. So if you want the goods from Aldi and Lidl, you have to go to store. As lockdowns have eased, both Aldi and Lidl have done better. Lidl's parent company reported 2020 sales of 125 billion euros, that's 105 billion pounds, which is more than the sales of Tesco, Sainsbury and Morrisons combined. The long-term outlook for Lidl is good. Tesco needs to be profitable in the UK, but Lidl operates in dozens of countries, so it's not bothered about making a loss in any one of them because it takes a portfolio management approach to its business to balance risk and it can move money around. It's big enough to do that. Discounters will probably be able to absorb about 50% of the cost of any inflation, which will keep them competitive. Lidl has 880 stores in the UK and intends to have 1,100 by the end of 2025. So it's looking for growth. Aldi competes on price and does particularly well. It has 23 popular items that go in the basket and they compete strongly against all the other supermarkets. So they focus attention on competing on certain lines. So let's see what happens in 2022. With climate change, there's a big push by governments to move vehicles to be powered by electric. Now it seems that almost everything is powered by electric these days and the demand for electricity has grown enormously. Just think of all the devices you have connected in your homes these days. They're all needing electric power to make them work and a lot of that electric power is made from fossil fuel and some of it is coal large proportion is still coal or gas or coal turned into gas and so on. So a large proportion of what we use to make electric is actually what we would call dirty fuel. The fuel that 
nobody wants to uh, own up to. And so there's a big push to green the supply of energy. And that, in the main, means using different sources. So it's either wind power, solar power, water power in some cases, and hydrogen, which seems to be a popular choice presently. Now, the problem with all of those fuels is that they only make up a very small percentage currently of what goes in to make electricity. And even when we've built the hydrogen plants, a lot of hydrogen that we make currently comes from fossil fuel. So we need to change the way we make the product to drive the power. And that's going to require innovation. It's going to require changing mindsets. It's going to require lots of people to change their habits and the cost. Cost relationships will change, which uh, means perhaps some pain in some cases as there's a switchover. So difficult times ahead. Now, when we think about electric power and this drive to have electric cars, obviously that makes good sense in one way, because it means that we haven't got cars pumping out CO2 and other nasty byproducts. The energy is clean. It's also quiet and it will mean a healthier environment. But there are concerns. People may want to switch for all those good reasons that we know about. But in fact, there is an anxiety about switching because most people I talk to say, yeah, it's a good idea. It costs more, I know, to buy this sort of car. I'm prepared to pay a little bit more to have a cleaner fuel car that helps the environment. But actually, do you know what really concerns me? What really concerns me is I'm anxious about whether I'm going to get to my destination because there aren't enough charging points. And actually, the capacity of batteries, it's getting better, but uh, it's not necessarily comparable with my petrol, diesel or other power. So there are concerns and there's a there's a problem to be overcome here. Now I want to talk a little bit more about how we can address some of those concerns. So that's that's what I'm going to turn my attention to next. When it comes to think about the purchase of an electric vehicle, there are several factors that come into the equation. Battery capacity is one thing, which I've mentioned briefly. The charging speed is another, how fast you can recharge that battery. There are choices of wheel size, vehicle weight, the driving speed, how heavy the vehicle is and what you're going to carry in it, and any wind drag. The difficulty of achieving the maximum ranges that uh, manufacturers state is compounded by your driving habits and how you expect that vehicle to perform. Over the next 10 years, hundreds of millions of people will be considering a purchase of a new electrical car or a vehicle for their business. In 2019, only 2.6% of global car sales were electric vehicles. Lots more cars are coming on to the forecourts in the next few years. But this problem of running out of fuel and the range of the car is something that we all need to be satisfied about. Now, charging stations we've mentioned, there are a few of them, and people have charging stations at their houses, and they expect to find them on the road. And until that problem is resolved, and there's more charging stations that are accessible, and we have a network equivalent to what we currently see for gasoline, petrol, diesel stations, nobody's going to be happy. So that needs, that infrastructure needs to be put into place. So there's a big investment 
that needs to be carried out. The other thing, the other solution to the battery problem is what we call battery swapping. Instead of charging a depleted battery, swap it over. This can save cost, it can save time, and it might be a good option for longer journeys. But hey, it's a faff, isn't it? You've got to swap the battery. That's got to be convenient. It's got to be easy. Everybody's got to be able to do that. So there are some ergonomic problems that will have to be resolved with regard to weight and where the battery is placed and how you can do it and whether it needs a service engineer to carry out that swap or you can just simply swap the battery. Another solution if you run out of fuel is that you can draw energy from another vehicle just like you can for a mobile phone. So you can plug and play, and in this case, plug and go. But it's finding somebody that's going to be able to share the power with you. So there are concerns about batteries and battery technology. Getting solutions to this problem will take us halfway to changing people's minds about the purchase of electric cars. You'll get the early adopters, but we need the late adopters as well. We need people who don't like change and they like the fossil fuel cars that they drive to be moved over to electric vehicles or to clean energy at least. Perhaps there are different ways to power the car. Most people I talk to like the idea of hybrid cars where they've got dual fuel so that they run out of battery. They know that the car's not going to stop because they can just switch over to a a tank of gasoline or to something else. And there must be a way that uh, cars can use the energy that they create in the drive more efficiently to recharge the battery. I mean, I can remember cycling around with my dynamo lamp attached to the wheel of my bicycle and I didn't need anything else the power of the bike my muscle power was driving that dynamo to create energy to light up the lights on the bike so we need to think innovatively about different sorts of arrangements some news hot after press from Reuters in China on this topic says that they're going to cut subsidies on new energy vehicles, such as electric cars, by 30% in 2022, and they hope to withdraw them all together at the end of the year. This was stated on the Finance Ministry website on Friday. The ministry had said in April 2020 that the new electric vehicle subsidies would be cut from 2020 to 2022 by 10, 20 and 30% respectively. For NEVs for public transport subsidies would be cut by 10% in 21 and 20% in 22. China, of course, is the world's biggest auto market and it's set a target for new electric vehicles, including plug-in hybrids and hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, which will be said to make up 20% of auto sales by 2025. Global car producers such as VW, General Motors, Toyota and Tesla are ramping up electric vehicle production in China. NIO said on Friday... The buyers of its ES8, ES6 and EC6 vehicles who paid a deposit on or before the December 31st, 2021 and are taking delivery of purchases before March 31st can still enjoy the subsidies under the 2021 plan. Any shortfall under the 2022 policy would be borne by the Shanghai-based firm, it said. The ministry also made comments about safety issues to prevent accidents. NEVs in China are expected to grow by 47% to 5 million in 2021. I wonder how long it will be before we see NIO 
as a player in global markets for the car industry and what impact that will have on global car manufacturing and supply. Hmm, remains to be seen. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Chain Reaction Podcast. And if you have, tell your colleagues and tell your friends about the Chain Reaction Podcast and let them hear it too. Don't keep this secret to yourself. Bye for now. I'll see you in the next episode. You've been listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast, written, presented, and produced by Tony Hines.